Before we begin this episode, I want to mention two things. First of all, wanted to let you as our listeners know that we recorded the Lenten series before the war in Ukraine began to happen. And so we realize now that we would like to pray together for our brothers and sisters in the human community in the Ukraine and want to pray for our world as there's a significant war going on. And so we're going to offer a special prayer experience at the end of this episode. So if you hang with us and would like to have a way to pray for what's going on in Ukraine and for our brothers and sisters there, please stay on with us and we will have a prayer experience at the very end of this episode. And then finally, as we turn the corner, starting to think towards Holy Week, we want to let you know that there is in our Christian tradition a practice called Keeping Vigil with Christ, uh, which often involves praying the Stations of the Cross. So our staff will be gathering at noon Central Time, Friday, April 15th, and we will be praying the Stations of the Cross together, and we would love for you to join us on Good Friday. You can join us virtually for this prayer experience if you purchase our Stations of the Cross prayer guide, and if you already have the guide, you can join us for a donation of any amount. And when you do that, when you purchase the guide or when you give a donation of any amount, you will get a code to be able to join this virtual prayer experience on Good Friday. And now enjoy this week's episode. And please don't forget to stay with us for the prayer experience at the very end if you're drawn into that. Hello, this is Ruth Haley Barton, and you are listening to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast, and we are working our way through Lent, Lent for leaders with God in the wilderness. And I'm here with my friend and colleague, Steve Weens, Senior Pastor of Genesis in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Hey, Steve, good to be with you again. Always good to be with you. We're finding our way, aren't we? We are. Walking through Lent together. Um, And today we're discussing the power of confession. The theme of confession, even leading to reconciliation, is very strong in the scriptures for this week. And we're going to begin, Steve, by having you read to us from Luke 15, and that is the story of the prodigal son. And so let's listen and find ourselves in this story as Steve reads. Thanks, Ruth. So this is from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 11 through 32. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had, And traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran out and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Steve, for that beautiful reading. And one of the things that I'm really struck with in listening to you read that passage is the fact that confession is really the pivot point of the story. I mean, confession is the point where everything changes and emerges from that moment when... Yeah, it's where the story kind of turns, doesn't it? It does. It does. And I feel, as, as I think about this in the context of Lent this year, that... There's a lot that relies, unhinges upon whether or not we as Christians can actually confess and turn. Don't you think? Um, wow. Yeah, well, <laughs> and there are so, <laughs> I mean, in my own life, there are so many examples, but certainly publicly, there are so many examples of times where you wish leaders would have confessed and didn't. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then we end up in huge messes. Right, right. And if, if, you know, I'm going to read Psalm 32, but if I could just go to that right now, because Psalm 32 is so pertinent, because the prodigal son gets to the point where he realizes that he has been wrong, uh, that he was very wrong to take his father's inheritance early, which was really an expression of a wish that he would die, you know, early, um, to take his inheritance early and then to go out and squander it was so destructive and painful, you know, within that family. And so he comes to his senses, as we know, and there's this moment where there's this phrase, which I just love in verse 17, when he came to himself. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I I wish that that would happen for all of us this week <laughs> or any time, uh, you, know. you know, that we would come to, you know, we would come to our senses and be able to see things that we haven't been able to see about how how our patterns have perhaps been destructive, how they've hurt others, 
what's going on, the deeper dynamics that produce the bad behaviors in the first place. And it's, there's such an inter- interesting juxtaposition with Psalm 32, because in Psalm 32, the psalmist talks about the temptation. The temptation is to stay silent and to never yeah. confess. So in verse 3 of Psalm 32, while I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the, the heat of summer. And then the turning point in the psalm is, but then I acknowledge my sin to you. So, I mean, the prodigal son story is just such an amazing concrete example of Psalm 32, which I'm sure is why the, those who developed the the lectionary put, put the two together in this kind of a juxtaposition. So, well, actually, why don't I go ahead and read Psalm 32 now? Because it just corresponds so well to the story of the prodigal son. And I think we can feel some of what's stated here in Psalm 32 in the story of the prodigal son. So it's a Psalm of David. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserved me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle, else it will not stay near you. Many are the torments of the wicked, But steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Wow. Mm -hmm. I would love to spend a little time talking about this temptation, especially for us as leaders, but, you know, for all of us, the temptation to keep silent about our sin and yeah. then confession as the practice that shows us another way. Yeah, well, I can think of a lot of reasons why we might stay silent, especially in the context of our ministry uh, positions, our, our vocations. Some of those environments aren't very friendly to maybe admitting wrongdoing. Uh, we've talked in past episode or past podcast seasons, Ruth, about the fact that we're typically our false self is what is hired, you know? Mm -hmm. And so coming to grips of some of our sin and confessing it sometimes is naming, um, I've been going about this all wrong and and my false self has been leading the way and I want to make a real change. You would hope that that kind of confession would be readily accepted in most environments. And sometimes, thank God it is. But, you know, I think a lot of times it isn't. And so lack of safety would be one reason you might be afraid to admit and confess where you've where you've gone wrong. Don't you think that's that's true? Mm hmm. 
Yeah, and, and even as you talk, that's one side of the coin, but the other side of the coin is the way in which we have often politicized confessions and apologies <laughs> as well, yeah, you know, yeah. and there's all they're this so coaching. Awful. Yeah, they're so awful. There's all this coaching for how to use it as a political moment and how to use an apology and a confession to your political advantage, of course, but that's after you can't deny anymore. So you deny yeah. and deny and deny, and then finally when it becomes untenable, then the politicians will make an apology or confession, but they're coached to no mm -hmm. end about how to yeah. make the confession in a way that might, number one, keep them from having to actually say the truth, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's, I'm sorry if I hurt you, I'm, you know, I didn't inhale, whatever. <laughs> so <laughs> there are all these ways to try to make the apology without actually having to confess anything. And then also how to use it to your own political ends as you make your confession, you know? And yeah. so there's a, I think there's a certain cynicism, Steve, don't you? There's, first of all, the fear, like you said, that it won't be received in the tenderness that is being offered. But then the other side of the coin also might be the way that we also feel rather cynical. I think we feel pretty cynical in our day and age about confessions and apologies. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And, and some of that is because of what you said. I mean, I remember hearing a certain apology, not to me, but publicly, uh, I'm sorry that I was less than artful with my words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, wow, <laughs> less than artful. That's, that's a pretty bad, that's a pretty bad confession. That's, that's, that's an image management type of confession. And I, so I, I, I do think we can become really cynical about, about the confessions we've heard. And I think, I think that's a big deal. The other thing that kind of shimmers to me in, in, in the passage and that, that, that might keep us in hiding for a while is maybe personally you're starting to see how you've squandered something, mm -hmm. squandered mm -hmm. a gift that you've been yeah. given. And sometimes coming to grips with that, you're like, if I, if I name the way that I squandered that gift, if it's mm -hmm. a person, if it's something that a trust, you know, that's been shattered, admitting it and confessing that and, and then living into the real consequences that mm -hmm. really are going to come your way. That's terrifying. I mean, it doesn't, right. that, 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 that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. In fact, freedom only comes by confessing. And I can see where someone would be shy to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I also think that it takes a certain internal strength and stamina because you know, shame is also Ooh. a, you know, like a vein running through a lot Ooh. of our psyches. And so to make a confession means we have to be able to face into something that we've done that was harmful um, and maybe shameful, but somehow be able to do it without being swept away, right? Without yeah. being swept away by feelings of shame and... Um, I think some people don't have the internal structures of their personality intact enough to, you know, be able to really face what they've done, why they've done it, what the ramifications are without like literally crumbling, you know, and yeah. there's some awareness, there's some, you know, unconscious awareness that we might physically or in any other way, we might really psychologically, psychically fall apart and not be able to function if we mm -hmm. have to fully face Ooh. hurt or sin or whatever. And so in an effort, unconscious, in an unconscious effort to avoid feelings of shame that might be completely debilitating, we just can't admit 
or acknowledge. And it's also, it's almost like a psychological coping mechanism yeah. to not, to not make confession at that level. Cause we know that psychically we just couldn't handle it. Couldn't keep ourselves together. Wow. Couldn't keep ourselves intact. I really think that is very true. And I just wonder, um, how, you know, for so many of us and so many different levels, how, how true that is. Uh, Ooh. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, another thing that might keep us from real confession is, you know, we see, we see some of the big, the big moral failures that, you know, happen. And we realize that sometimes that's a self-sabotage that something needs to get me out of this unsustainable life. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to do this thing that's going to enable me to leave this ministry that I, that I just feel so dry mm. and incapable of doing anymore. So I'm going to do something so wow. heinous that it's mm-hmm. going to take, you know, it's going to take me right out of it. Mm. And even if there's an apology after that, or even if there's a confession after that, you know, we can, you can sense, okay, that's, that's not really, you know, that's not really maybe a confession as much as it is, you know, a way a, out, a parachute mm-hmm. to get out. <laughs> um, and that's real. I mean, that's, that's a psychological reality mm-hmm. for many people. I think that, have, but that unconscious have in, in many cases, right? Unconscious. Like, yeah. That would not be a conscious decision to say, because I want out and I don't know how to get out. I'm going to do something immoral so that I have to get out. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you know, I that wouldn't to, yeah. be a conscious thought process. Would no. it? I, I don't think so. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't, but I think, I think that's where it goes. And so, I mean, these are a lot of things that would keep us secret. And, and I think there's more. I'm, I am interested. Okay, now let's talk about someone that really wants mm-hmm. to confess, needs to confess. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the practice of confession. What is it really like? How do you get there? How do you get past some of these, the shame and yeah. some of these other uh, obstacles that keep us hidden? Well, I think I see desperation in this story, that sometimes we have to get desperate enough to fix our lives, to want to live a different life, to want to mend relationships, to want to mend our tattered lives, you know, so there, there may be a certain kind of desperation that we enter into, very much like in the process with the 12 steps, you have to have gotten pretty desperate to take stock of your life and to make amends and to go through the process of apologizing to all, apologizing to all those people that you've hurt. And you're doing it in some ways out of desperation and in some ways out of desire mm-hmm. to change your life and to change the trajectory of your life. So there's a, there it definitely is for some of us going to take that kind of desperation to make us willing uh, to enter into such a process. And then it could be that, that there is a psychological process that we go through even in therapy or with support where we have to kind of to build a stronger sense of self um, and a stronger sense of grace, a stronger sense that God will be there with us and for us, um, that forgiveness is available, that grace is available, and that even if that other person can't give us what we want or even if they handle and receive our apology badly, that we know where we stand with God yeah. and we know this is the thing that's ours to do in God. And we're doing it, you know, even a little bit more for God than for the other mm. person, you know, that their response isn't going to necessarily determine how we feel about the importance and the effectiveness of this practice of confession. Because 
confession is a spiritual practice and by definition a spiritual practice opens up space for God to do something that only God can do within us. So we can't let other people's responses to us or our own feelings of shame keep us from opening because that would be a loss too great. That would be, you know, layers of loss then, you know, to, to refuse to enter into this practice because we don't feel we can hold ourselves together. So even some psychological or spiritual support for such a thing could be helpful, I think. Thanks. Thanks, Ruth, for that, because I think maybe in maybe for many of us, at least in my background, I feel like the work of repentance and confession is all this inside job that you just got to get ready for it on your own. You got to pray enough and you got to journal enough until you're finally ready by yourself. But maybe what you're saying mm-hmm. is really true. No, you know, there, if, if we're really going to move into this in an authentic way that is life-saving and life-changing, some of us will need some help from a therapist, a spiritual director, a trusted friend, a, you know, an Anamkara, a soul friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thank you for that. I, I think so much of this, again, to repeat myself, I'm repeating myself, but we feel like it's just the thing you got to do by yourself. You got to get ready on your own and, and you got to confess to God and then somehow magically you're going to be ready and maybe not. Maybe you need other kind of help. I like that. Thank yeah. you for that. Well, you know, unfortunately, in the Protestant tradition, we don't have a lot of structure and guidance around the practice of confession. So the Catholics just have so much more to offer. Yes. Like they have confession as an actual practice, and you go do it, and you do it with a priest, and you get ready to do it, and then the priest tells you what to do afterwards. And there's it's it's built in. You know, the practice of confession is built in. Now, that is not to say that that it doesn't become perfunctory at times, you sure. know, and, and we know that it does and that it can. Um, but at the same time, that's a practice that the Catholic tradition has elevated and actually given support and guidance for in a way that our Protestant faith hasn't actually given us as much to know how to do it and do it well. And to even have a relationship, I mean, they call the priest, they, they, they name a role of confessor, yeah. you know, which is someone that you actually confess to. And sometimes our spiritual directors are confessors where we make our confessions first in their presence. And it actually gives us a little practice saying out loud what it is that we need to confess and receiving the grace and the love and even the absolution, I mean, that, that we might need. Someone proclaiming to us and saying over us, something about God's forgiveness. You know, if we are faithful and just to, you know, if if we are faithful to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That those are the words of absolution that we can offer to each other as priests within the priesthood of all believers. And sometimes we need someone else to hear the confession and to pronounce absolution before we make the confession to the person that we've hurt. Um, and then sometimes there's wisdom needed. I, whenever I teach about confession, there's always somebody who asks about confessions that are going to hurt another person. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, like confessing, you know, unfaithfulness in a marriage mm-hmm. or something like that. And there's even some wisdom, relational wisdom and spiritual wisdom that needs to be brought to that before we just go off and do it um, to have some support for ourselves. So, I mean, we're really in the deep end of the weeds right now, but... Or the deep end of the pool. Deep in the weeds. Deep end of the pool. We're, something like that. The weeds are <laughs> we deep. We are deep in it is what I'm saying. And the weeds are deep at the bottom of the pool. The so. weeds are deep. The, <laughs> no, I, it, I mean, we're, I'm, I'm, we're, we're laughing and it's yeah, maybe but it's necessary. Not, yeah. but, but I think, Ruth, what you're saying, though, is there's a process that can be mm-hmm. used in confession, especially when 
what is needing to be confessed is very hurtful and deep to someone else. And so, I mean, I, I have sat in church services where in large auditoriums, the pastor says, you know, you should get out your phone right now and call the person, Mm. confess your sins. And, you know, I don't want to be too critical on that. You know, I think maybe the spirit of that is, is perhaps, I don't want to call it good, but at least the motivation is good. But I think in, in, in process, holding someone's heart tenderly as we're thinking about making a deep confession is so important and being mm-hmm. as ready as you can be. So, you know, this is why, I mean, you mentioned the 12 steps earlier, but there is a whole process. There's a reason why the order is what the order is. And so, that's right. And making amends isn't until I think step five or six or something oh, like yeah, that. Oh yeah. It's not, way down the sure. line. Yeah. yeah that's not step line. one. Mm-hmm. That's not step one. And so that's right. I think there's some wisdom there. But I, you also mentioned this desperation, and I think out of our story, he came to himself, the prodigal son did, he came to himself, yes. and you see him sitting eating the, you know, the, the pig food, the pods of whatever, and that's his hitting bottom. I mean, he hits bottom, and he realizes, I do not want to live this way anymore. And so maybe that's a prerequisite as well, like before a true kind of confession, where is the bottom that you have hit? What level of desperation have you come to? Or you still think you can dig your way out of this on your own? <laughs> you know, he, he came to a realization that I cannot fix this on my own. I need to turn and I need to stop what I am doing. And I need to, I need to confess my sin before God and before my father. Mm-hmm. There's something to that, right? Yeah. And yes, and the, the, that's the thing right there is there is a process, I think, having to do with these things. And first of all, he had to see, yep. you know, where he was. Like he had to have a realistic assessment of where he was. Then he had to name his sin, and he did it not just to his father, but he did it, you know, in his to confession. God, yeah. He recognized that he had sinned against heaven, which is to sin against God, that his behavior mm-hmm. had been a sin against God first. Um, then a sin against his father. Um, so there's this naming of it clearly. And this is uncomfortable for us as well, because if someone comes and makes a confession, sometimes we're so uncomfortable. Oh, that was okay. I didn't, I didn't even notice it. Don't oh, even yeah, worry about it. Yeah. That was no big deal at all. But there's something really important in confession to having the opportunity to name mm-hmm. exactly what you've done and confess it for the sin that it is. And I would even say sometimes that confession can and should involve a confession of what it was inside me that actually caused me to behave in that way. Mm. And I don't know if this young man ever got in touch with what caused him to do what he did to his father. I hope so. I hope at some point he was able to name not just the action itself, but what was happening inside him that caused him to make such a poor choice. You know, and then there's the, you know, the turning around the metanoia turning around and going back and being willing to see what would happen as he went back and just was that honest with his dad and of course we know the story turns out better than he expected although I wonder if he knew his dad well enough to know that his dad would have been waiting and willing to have him brought back into complete and full fellowship Um, and you know there's a part of the story that obviously is not even spoken to um that I'm always curious about is, you know, and of course it's a story, it's a parable, but 
what would reconciliation right. between the two brothers be like? You know, mm-hmm. so the yeah. older brother is so angry. And is there a confession that needs right. to be made to the older brother from the younger mm-hmm. brother for leaving the yeah. bag with him? You know, I mean, maybe. Yes, yes. And I'm always curious about w- what that would have looked like. And could he get there? And could those two brothers get? And we don't even know if the older brother and the father end up on the same page at the end of the story. So there's, there's a lot Yeah, we don't even go, know if the older but... brother even ever got back into the room. No, no, we you know? don't know. That's one of the brilliant um, it, parts of the story. It's kind of left at the end. Mm-hmm. I also wonder if the father was able to be a good parent and help them. I find myself really wishing that the father would have been able to help these two brothers, you know, somehow be that wise, helpful presence to help these two men come come back to one another because they're they're certainly very polarized the way the story is left that they're very polarized and and actually need help and maybe that's the place of reconciliation which is another part of this particular week our passages from second corinthians talk about the fact that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation and that is a bit too much for us to handle right now, Steve. So yeah. we'll have to have a conversation offline, and maybe that will be made available to our patrons. Ooh, we, juicy! If we can, yes, set that aside. But, but you know, reconciliation—that's your question, isn't it? Was yeah. was reconciliation ever possible for these two brothers? Yeah. It, but yeah. in this story, staying right with this story, confession is definitely the pivot point of yep. the story. It's what changes the outcome. And so I am wondering if for the next six days or whenever it is that people are listening to this particular episode, if we could do a bit of an examine around our sin and just with complete openness before the Lord, ask God to search us and to know us and uh, maybe surface those things that still need to be confessed in our lives. This is a very brave, I'm not going to lie, this is a very brave prayer to pray because God seems to always answer this one. <laughs> you Shoot. Know, if, we, if we ask God to show us where we have fallen short and might need to make confession, God inevitably answers and surfaces things, reveals things that we might have been able to keep outside our consciousness. But the good news is that Confession is such a healing practice, you know, in other places yeah. in the New Testament, we're told to confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed, which is such an amazing thought that healing could happen in our lives through this practice, which I think mm. many of us are probably holding hard things that oh yeah, that need healing, and confession yes. is part of the way to that. Yeah. So, you know, questions you could sit with for your exam in this week are simply, what have I squandered? What what gifts have I squandered in ways that have hurt relationships and have sinned against people and against God? And then maybe the corresponding question would be, what gifts have I received this week that have helped me to awaken to God's grace and God's mercy? Uh, can you think of any other corresponding examine questions that could help Ruth for people that would want to sit with this? Well, I think another brave practice would be to go back to situations that feel unresolved to you still in your life. Mm -hmm. And rather than reflexively projecting and blaming it onto the other person, to actually ask God 
in that unfixable situation, what was my part in that? Because I'm yeah. pretty certain it wasn't just all about the other person. Yeah. What was my part in that? And then to bravely receive whatever God gives. I mean, that's that's hard, especially if it's an old wound. And the way that we've dealt with the wound is by convincing ourselves that it was all about the other person and that we had yep. nothing to do with it, that they're the yep. ones that are to blame. Be very, very brave to go back to some of those painful, unresolved situations and ask the question of God, what was my part in that? Even as we say what the other person's part was, it doesn't diminish what their part was, but what was my part yep. in that situation? And is there anything that I need to confess or that God is asking me to proactively um, go go back perhaps and make my own confessions, at least to God, if not to the other person? And there is one more question that I think is really important in the process, and that is what can I do to make it right? Yeah. Is there anything that I can do to make this right? Or am I even willing to ask the other person as I make my confession, what can I do to make this right? Because sometimes there really are. And what a question to receive when someone has made a confession and then they follow up by saying, is there anything I could do to make this right? And to, you know, hopefully if we were ever on the receiving end of something like that, hopefully we wouldn't rush, but we'd give ourselves a little space and say, yeah, I'm not sure. I need I need to take that into my prayer, but thank you so much for asking. I'd like to take that into my prayer. Yeah. I think this is this is the stuff of our healing right here. Mm. Um and any little place that gets healed in the body of Christ is going to strengthen strengthen the body of Christ as a whole. The little places that we know we can heal are going to heal and strengthen the body of Christ as a whole. And I think that's another reason why I feel so passionate about confession is because any attempts that we make can strengthen the whole body versus all the little broken places that we just leave broken. And thanks for expanding it from simply individual to very communal. I mean, mm-hmm. th- these are, this is the fabric of our unity for one another. Our love for one another is strengthened by these works mm-hmm. of confession. And it is for our mutual healing and our mutual freedom. Thanks for bringing it to that. Otherwise, I think at times confession can feel very single, singular and solitary and just feel bad about my own stuff enough to where you know, I can eventually move on. And that's certainly, there's much more to it than that. I feel like this is probably the deepest heart of Lent, that this might be the most challenging and intense, and I think we're going to start turning a bit of a corner in the next week. So let's just support ourselves here in this place um, by reminding ourselves that The temptation for everyone, but for us as leaders in particular, is to hide our sin, to remain hidden, to believe that, you know, we don't have to confess that nobody else knows about it. If I don't say anything about it, nobody else will notice it either, that sort of thing. Um, But the call, the call to the practice of confession and on these two levels of confession, confessing to God, yes, for sure, but also confessing to one another as that's needed, believing that um, we will be healed in, in the body of Christ, in community, if we can make our confessions to one another. And I know that some of us might be sitting here right now thinking, wow, if I knew what it was, I would confess it, you know, but I just don't know what it is that I'm supposed to be confessing right now. So I'd like us to pray right into that place of unknowing and see if this prayer by Michael Lunig, he's a Canadian, um, might help us. It's a beautiful prayer that I think articulates our desire to find the confession so that we can actually enter into the practice. So let's receive this at the end of our episode today. God, help us to find our confession, the truth within us which is hidden from our mind. 
the beauty or the ugliness we see elsewhere, but never in ourselves. The stowaway which has been smuggled into the dark side of the heart, which puts the heart off balance and causes it pain, which wearies and confuses us, which tips us in false directions and inclines us to destruction. The load which is not carried squarely because it is carried in ignorance. God, help us to find our confession. Help us across the boundary of our understanding. Lead us into the darkness that we may find what lies concealed, that we may confess it towards the light, that we may carry our truth in the center of our heart, that we may carry our cross wisely and bring harmony into our life and our world. Amen. Friends, thanks for staying with us for a few moments of prayer for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine and for our world right now as we are in such turmoil. And as we enter into this short time of prayer, we're going to hold our concerns before the Lord in a particular way. Um, I'm going to move through four different categories of care and concern. There are many others. This is not meant to be exhaustive at all. This is just meant to give us a way in to pray about something that seems beyond words, that seems incomprehensible, something that makes us feel hopeless, something that makes us understand how powerless we are at times and how much we need God to come and to rescue us in the midst of our human situation. And so I'm going to lead us through four different categories of prayer, and I'm going to invite you, if it feels comfortable to you, and I'm, I'm hoping that you're not driving or whatever, but if you are, you'll, you'll find a way, but that we might do a short body prayer um, with each one of these where we open our hands in front of us on our laps. And in the first movement, when I bring up the category, you'll just allow that category to, to sit and to rest in your open hands on your lap. And you just allow it to come into your consciousness and just to be there. You don't try to do anything with it yet. And then in the second movement, you'll raise your hands chest high. And you'll imagine that you and God are actually looking at it now together. And that you and God together are praying and weeping and paying attention and observing and feeling all the feelings that go along with whatever that aspect of this hard situation is that comes to your mind and that I've brought to your attention. And then in the third movement, you will just open your hands, um, raise them high above your head as you're able, if you're able, and release that care and concern to God. So especially in the third, in the, in the second movement, in the middle movement, you're actually holding this in God's presence, knowing that God cares, uh, sharing emotion with God, knowing that God weeps over the grief and terror that is here in our world. And then when we raise our hands, it's not that we're washing our hands and turning away, but it's that we are in a very concrete way releasing ourselves and those we care about into God's care, knowing that um, we do need God to intervene in our situation right now. And so I'll move through four categories uh, with those three movements. And before we do that, let me read a psalm. I'm going to read Psalm 46 that will hopefully uh, help us to enter into this moment with great trust in God. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
therefore we will not fear. Though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. Come, behold the works of the Lord. See what desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. And so in this first movement of our prayer, I invite you to open your hands on your lap. And first of all, to allow the Ukrainian people who are suffering and fleeing their country, seeing their neighbors killed in the streets, sometimes their families being separated from their families, women and children leaving their men behind, younger people leaving their parents behind, children who get separated from their parents or whose parents have actually been caught and killed in this intense war. So we hold the Ukrainian people and especially the children, especially the families who are being torn apart. And we hold them in our consciousness. We allow them to come into our consciousness and all the pain that we feel as we allow ourselves to be present to this experience in our world. And then we raise our hands chest high, raising our hands open before the Lord, holding the Ukrainian people, especially the children and the families, the people who are fleeing, the refugees now. And we hold them now in God's presence too. And together, God and I look upon the Ukrainian people and the hardness of their situation, the distress, the pain, the despair, and the suffering and the loss. And together, God and I gaze and look upon this human situation together. And as we do so, we feel our own grief, and we also feel God's heart breaking for what's happening in our world, what's happening among his children. And if tears come, we allow ourselves to weep as we feel the pain taking place in this part of our world. And then finally, as we're ready, we open our hands, we raise them above our heads in some attempt to release these people, these dear ones, these brothers and sisters into God's care. And now in the second offering of our prayer, we bring our hands back down to our laps. And now we pray for the countries who are receiving these refugees, for Poland and Germany and Romania, for the United States. And with our hands open on our laps, we allow these countries who feel called to minister in these moments, these countries who are opening their doors with tremendous radical hospitality towards those who are fleeing 
to a safer place. The work of it, the expense of it, the feeling of being overwhelmed, and yet the refusal to turn anyone away. We ask and pray and are aware of the need for resources and strength and stamina to continue to welcome and to open their hearts and their countries and their doors. We hold this reality of the countries receiving refugees in our own awareness and we feel the impact of it. And then we raise our hands, our open hands in front of our chests and hold our hands out to God and we hold these countries that are receiving refugees and the organizations that are ministering and the people themselves who are probably experiencing at times exhaustion and limitation. We pray for them and hold them in God's loving presence and we gaze with God at these good people who are seeking to serve. And we feel our desire for them to be upheld in this crisis. And then as we are ready, we open our hands and lift our hands above our heads in an attempt to release these dear ones who need strength and stamina and resources into God's loving, empowering care. And as we're ready, we return our hands to our laps. And now we allow to come into our awareness and into our consciousness the soldiers who are fighting on both sides of this crisis. For the Ukrainian soldiers who are risking their lives, absolutely certain that they will not relinquish their country. Soldiers who feel that they have been trained for such a time as this, as well as soldiers who are despairing because of where they find themselves and are standing courageously anyway, who are courageously defending their land and their life and their families and their countrymen. We also hold in our awareness the Russian soldiers as well, many of whom did not really know what they were getting into when they were deployed and who come into the Ukraine not even having known what would be expected of them or what kind of violence they would be a part of, who are confused and broken and lost. And we allow the dilemma that these soldiers are facing to come into our awareness, all of them. And then we lift our hands chest high openly before the Lord. And now it's God and I looking upon these soldiers together with love. Knowing that God cares for each and every one of them. Feeling God's love for them. Maybe even shedding God tears, God's tears for them as they do what is theirs to do or as they find themselves in confounding situations where they don't even know what they're supposed to be doing.
And then as you're ready and if you're ready, you can raise your hands and open them before the Lord, releasing these soldiers, those who must fight, into God's loving care. And as you're ready, you can bring your hands down to your lap one more time. Open your hands on your lap, and in this moment, allow our world leaders to come into your consciousness, to come into your awareness, and hold them in your consciousness. To hold President Putin in God's presence, in our consciousness, whatever it is that we feel towards him right now. We hold our desire for him to have a change of heart and to pull back. We hold the other leaders of the world who are seeking to discern what is called for from them in these moments when an independent country is being invaded like this and the way in which the outcomes of this war may change our world, the weight that they feel for doing the right thing and knowing what the right thing is. We hold all of these naughty questions in our own consciousness. We let it all come how we feel about all of it, and especially what it would be like to be caught in decision-making and leadership at this time. And then we raise our open hands, chest high. We hold our hands out open before the Lord, holding our world leaders in God's presence. We look upon our world leaders together with God, knowing that God feels pain as well, that God sheds tears with us as well, that God has good purposes that God wants to bring through the leaders of the world right now. And we together with God, pray and hold our world leaders in God's presence consciously. And then finally, as we are ready, we raise our hands and open them to God, raise them above our heads. And as we are able, if we are able, and only if we're able, or maybe we let our bodies lead us, we release our world leaders into God's loving care and also we release them into God's guidance and we pray that God will indeed guide them in ways that will be good for all. And then as we are ready, we bring our hands back into our laps and maybe we can take a few moments and let those words from Psalm 46 resonate. Be still, at least for a moment, and know that I am God. And I have the whole world in my hands. Amen. <laughs>